Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade men. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, it is for the sake of God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What is it that motivates people to do the things that they do? What is it that motivates someone to want to climb Mount Everest? I mean, that's just completely and utterly beyond me. I have no idea. That, that is an enormously difficult climb. The climb itself from the base camp up to the top, it's only a rise of 3,400 metres, which well, I suppose that's a reasonable distance. But that's not what makes it hard. And I didn't realise until this week when I was doing a little bit of research, did you know that it actually takes between three and four weeks to actually get from the base camp to the top? I'm thinking it's a bit of a day stroll, but apparently not. You've got to go backwards and forwards between all of those camps, moving all of your equipment further and further up the mountain each time. And then on the last day, from the, from the camp closest to the summit, you leave to get up there. You leave at midnight so that you can get up there and back before the sun sets the, the following day. I mean, this is, a, this is an incredibly difficult thing. On a good day, it's minus 25 degrees. On a bad day, it could get as low as minus 75 degrees. Now, a sprinter at sea level can cover 200 metres in about 20 seconds. The, the fastest climb up Mount Everest, they were doing 200 metres per hour. 200 metres in an hour. Like, we're talking up to Gladstone Park, taking an hour to get that far. It was George Mallory who famously said to the question, why climb Mount Everest? Because it's there. I was going to show you the photo of his body, which is actually still resting on Mount Everest. I'm not sure he would necessarily say that same answer now. Um, but it's a tough thing, isn't it? 
And why would you do it? Why would you want to climb Mount Everest? I mean, is it just simply that sense of achievement? Is it fame and recognition? Is it the adrenaline rush? Is it to prove something to yourself? If you're going to endure that kind of hardship, if you're going to push yourself through that kind of pain, if you're going to go through that suffering, there's got to be some strong motivation, hasn't there? So what was it that motivated Paul in what he did? What was it that motivated him to keep on going in the face of pretty remarkable suffering? What was it that motivated him to endure all that he went through? So we've got another one of those passages today where Paul's going to talk about his hardships. Have a look at chapter 6 and find verse number 4, just a little snippet again. He does this a number of times through the letter. He says this, chapter 6, verse 4, Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, in great endurance, in troubles, hardships, distress, in beatings, imprisonment and riots, in hard work, sleepless nights and hunger. What motivates you to keep going when you're facing all of that? Well, Paul tells us in this passage, in fact, he says he has three motivations to continue to keep pressing on, three motivations to continue to promote Jesus. First motivation is there right at the beginning of the Bible reading that we had, chapter 5, verse 11. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade men. Paul says, it's a bit of a strange one, not one that you were expecting, Paul says that he is motivated by fear, fear of the Lord. Now, I don't think he's got in mind that kind of hide in the corner and cringe in fear of the Lord. I don't think that's the idea. I think it's more that he's got respect for God in mind there. And I think we actually know that kind of awe and reverence that really is tantamount to fear. Um, might be reverence, you, you might have had this experience that you're meeting someone famous, someone important, and, and you know that this person is an important person. There'll be that sense of fear about meeting them. I can vividly remember when I was 12 years old, my dad knew a guy who played for the Balmain Tigers. Now, we were all crazy Tigers supporters in our household, and, and he, he was coming to our, our place for dinner. I was 12, my older brother was 14, the other two were a bit younger, and I can, I can still vividly remember standing in the corridor, hearing the doorbell ring and the door opening, and this, this man, large guy, walked through the door. Fear is the only word to describe what we were feeling. There's no question about that. Now, it wasn't that we were worried that he was going to beat us up or pile drive us into the ground or anything. That wasn't it. It was just this awe, having this incredibly famous person, well, in our minds, walking in and eating in our house. Well, Paul says he knows what it is to fear the Lord. He knows what God is like. He knows that he ought to have that respect, that reverence, that awe for the creator of the universe. And it goes one step further. To understand what Paul means by fear of the Lord, you also need to take a step back and have a look at verse number 10. This is what he says, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, because he's just been talking about the fact that God is judging For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ and each one may receive what uh, what is due to him 
for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade men. This is one of those really annoying places where the New International Version has put a heading in between those two verses. I mean, they break it up as though we're moving on to talk about some other topic now. But in Paul's mind, the two things flow together. God is going to judge this world. And because we know that God will judge and God will rightly judge, we have that respect and that reverence for God. We will all stand before God. The judgment will take place and it will involve everyone. Each person will have to give an account. You'll have to stand. It won't be done in groups. It won't be done in family groupings. Each individual will have to stand before God. And the judgment won't happen in your absence, Paul is saying. You will be the one who's standing before God. Every individual will have to give an account. And it's not just Christians who will stand before God. It's everyone on the face of this earth who will stand before God. So do you see what Paul's saying here? Since we know what it is to have reverence for God, we try to tell everybody about God. We tell them about the forgiveness that God offers. Paul Paul wants everyone to be made right with God. Since we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade everyone, Paul says. That's motivation number one. Motivation number two is found in verse number 14 of chapter 5. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And then he fills it out a little bit further along in verse 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There it is, Christ's love. He who had no sin became sin for us so that we might be declared right in God's eyes. Jesus died for our sin. If God's judgment is the bad news, then what Jesus has done for us is the overwhelmingly good news. Yes, God is going to judge, but at the same time, he's also made it possible for us to stand before him without fear on that last day. He's made it possible for us to be forgiven, for the debt to be dealt with, for our sin to be paid for. Jesus has shown this incredible love by dying on the cross. And Paul says that he is compelled by that love to tell others. Paul knows what it is to be loved and forgiven and he wants everybody else to know that love and forgiveness. If you know what it is to be loved by God, Paul says, then you want to tell others. You want the world to know that love. When you understand that one died for all, then you will be compelled to tell people, Paul says. But look at the verse again, verse 15, chapter uh, chapter 5, verse 15. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Now, it's not that you're forced to now live for Jesus. It's not that you've been brought into some slavery program. The fact is, if you understand what it is that he has done for you, then you will want to live for Jesus. 
be easy to let that verse just sort of slide through unnoticed, wouldn't it? But it really challenged me during the week. And if it hasn't challenged you yet, look at it again. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Talking to someone uh, just last night, and uh, this person is, uh, has taken an early retirement, and I said, so how are you going to be using your retirement? What will you be doing with yourself? And he said, well, got a big list of me things. And he listed off all of the things that he wanted to do for him. And I mean, I'd never met the guy before. I wasn't going to kind of put him on the spot. But here's a guy who claimed to be a Christian, and there didn't seem to be any Jesus things in there at all. But what about you? How would you say that you are living for Jesus? What is it that marks your life out as being different because of what Jesus has done for you? Paul says that he's compelled by Christ's love, that it's the driving force in his life. And if we're people who live because of what Jesus has done, then we should be people who live for Jesus. And it should be something that we're doing consciously. Paul's third motivation, chapter 5, verse 16. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view, though once we regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Paul no longer views people from a worldly point of view. In fact, before he understood about God's judgment and God's love, he says that he even used to view Jesus from a worldly point of view, from an earthly point of view. For Paul, that meant regarding Jesus as a fraud and a troublemaker. But when you understand about God's judgment, when you understand about Christ's love, then Paul says it changes the way that you see Jesus. I think there are still plenty of people today who regard Jesus from a worldly perspective, the same way that Paul did. They would say that he's a good teacher, a good moral example. They would acknowledge his kindness and his love. They would acknowledge that he helped the poor and the needy. But start talking about Jesus being the son of God or start talking about Jesus' death on the cross actually achieving something or start talking about Jesus coming again to judge and people won't want to hear that. They'll dismiss that. They'll regard Jesus from a worldly perspective, appreciate all of the things that they think that he should have done but not want to listen to the things that Jesus has to say. Have a look at verse 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Paul says it's not just his view of Jesus that's changed. Paul now sees everyone from a heavenly point of view. It's not just Jesus that's changed in his thinking. It's changed the way that he views the whole world. Paul says there are two kinds of people in this world. There are those who have been reconciled to God through Jesus and there are those who are yet to be reconciled to God through Jesus. And then he says this, verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, the old is gone and the new has come. And all of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them, and he has committed to us this message of reconciliation. 
That's his third motivation. First of all, fear. Secondly, love. Thirdly, he has been given this ministry of reconciliation. That's a word we've heard a lot over the last few years in this country, isn't it? I mean, there's no doubt that Indigenous people in this country have been treated badly since white settlement and steps have been taken toward reconciliation. Uh, Our Prime Minister famously stood up in Parliament a few years ago to say, sorry. Another step towards that reconciliation process. But did you notice the difference here? It's actually God who's been wronged. It's God who's been mistreated and yet God is the one who takes the steps towards reconciliation. God has dealt with our wrongdoing. God is the one who holds out forgiveness. Paul says that he is motivated to preach by those three things. Motivated by that reverence, that fear of God. Motivated by love and motivated by this idea of reconciliation, that God has given him that ministry. Now, I know I've mentioned this before, but back in 1998, there was a a breast cancer drug trial in the United States, and it was cancelled two months before it was supposed to finish. The trial involved 1,500 women who had previously suffered from breast cancer. It was about breast cancer recurrence. And Half of the women were given this drug, tamoxifen, and the other half were given a placebo, or a double-blind test, so that they could see whether or not this drug is, actually works. But partway through, they cancelled the trial, two months before it was supposed to finish. And the reason that they cancelled it was that news came through from the United States about a trial that had taken place there, and it had shown that 45% of the women who had been taking tamoxifen no longer showed any indications of the cancer recurring. So the trial in Australia was immediately cancelled. The 750 women who were on the placebo were given the real drug. So when you're presented with that kind of information, when you see the truth of what this drug is actually doing, well, it would be unethical to keep giving those 750 women the placebo, wouldn't it? See, what Paul says is true. As people who have been reconciled to God... We've been given that ministry of reconciliation. We know what it is to be reconciled to God. We know what it is to be in that relationship with God. And we know how it is that people can be reconciled to God. Dare I say, it'd be unethical for us to keep that a secret, wouldn't it? I'm sure that if you sat down right now, you'd be able to write a list of five or six people who you know who have not yet been reconciled to God. So the question is, what can you do to enable them to find out more? What can you do to enable them to find out about that love of Christ? Maybe you could invite them along to church here. Maybe you could give them a good book or a video to to watch. Invite them to Bible study. Maybe even offer to read the Bible with them. Maybe you just need to sit down and talk with them Tell them about what it means for you to have your trust in Jesus. God is at work reconciling people to himself and we have been given that ministry of reconciliation. If you're sitting here today as someone who has not yet been reconciled to God, well, Paul says, be reconciled. 
God has demonstrated this extraordinary love to us, offers this forgiveness, even though God is the one who was wronged, he wants to be reconciled to you. Let me close with Paul's words. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation.